couple things before we get started here. So this is our last Sunday before the beginning of Advent. The last Sunday in this series, Kingdom Habits of the Heart. Next Sunday we start a new series uh, and kind of shift in our direction towards Advent, um, looking at the book of Ruth from the Old Testament. And um, <clears throat> be patient with me as I, I'm probably going to try to preach with my glasses on. The reason I often stumble over words sometimes <laughs> in the liturgy is the, the shadows and lights, and I'm still getting used to these glasses, which are progressive lenses, but nevertheless are hard for me to well, I look out, and it's just a different experience. So, But I'm going to try uh, to endure here. Uh, this morning, our scripture again is Matthew 5, um, verses 1 through 16. Hear God's word to us. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven, in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us joyful hearts, give us clear vision of you, Give us pure hearts, give us merciful hearts. Give us a vision of what it is you call us to be in this world, in this particular time and in this particular place, what it means to be a witness to Jesus Christ, what it means to suffer. Wherever we find ourselves spiritually, whether close to you or far from you, we do pray that you show yourself to us, show yourself and your love, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most well-known martyrs of the 20th century was a German theologian and pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was executed in 1945 in a Nazi prison camp because of his involvement in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. 
And his death at the age of 39 was the culmination of 15 years of consistent resistance to the rise of Nazism and the dictatorship of Adolf Hitler. And Bonhoeffer was one of the leaders of what has, was called the Confessing Church Movement, which was a very loose coalition of German churches across denominations um, and Christian organizations that repudiated and condemned the ideology of National Socialism and all of its policies. And given how clearly evil and reprehensible the reign of Nazi Germany was, it is surprising that there were not more Christians, more men and women like Bonhoeffer, that were willing to stand up and resist. Germany was a deeply Christian nation, historically the birthplace of the Reformation, and yet the vast majority of German churches, both the theologically conservative ones and the liberal progressive ones, both the Lutheran ones and the Roman Catholic ones, mostly went along with the National Socialist agenda and Hitler offering little to no resistance. Reading the history of the German church and its complicity and Hitler's rise to power is a very discouraging and disheartening one. I think from our vantage point today, we look back and the Nazis are synonymous and equivalent to unambiguous and clear evil. And I think that most Americans, especially American Christians, I think we imagine that if we were in the shoes of German Christians at that time, that we would have acted differently. That motivated by our Christian convictions and view of the world, we, with Bonhoeffer, would have stood against and resisted the Nazis and National Socialism. But I'm not so sure <laughs> this is true. We tend to believe that seeing evil for what it is and resisting it is a matter primarily to do with having the right ideas and the right politics. Conservatives imagine that theological orthodoxy will be a bulwark against evil. And progressive enlightened people imagine that their progressive view of the world is one that always bends towards justice and that in the end will always put them on the right side of history. But in Germany, both of these groups were well represented and both of them ended up on the very wrong side of German history, of world history. And so what was it about Bonhoeffer? What was it that set him apart from the rest of his Christian countrymen? What gave him prophetic insight to see what was coming and the moral courage to resist it? It was an understanding of discipleship that had suffering at the center. What Bonhoeffer found most wanting in Christians of his day was the cross. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, there is a famous passage, and it's unfortunately not the one I put in your worship folder, so you can't follow along, so just listen. Where Bonhoeffer says this, he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. 
The first, Christ, the first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon attachments to the world. It is the sign of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. And as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Bonhoeffer wrote this in 1937, in the very hardened midst of the rule of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Like all Christians, who live in highly Christianized societies and nations like our own, we tend to be shocked and unready to suffer for our faith. The Christian nation or culture should protect us from this, right? But Bonhoeffer reminds us of a very important truth that Christian discipleship always, in every age, in every time, in every nation, however Christian or unchristian, involves suffering. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer's most powerful means of resistance, of resisting evil in the world, according to Bonhoeffer, is a cross-centered discipleship, one that has learned the daily habit of dying to oneself and suffering for righteousness' sake, when only you are the one who knows the suffering. With the last beatitude, Jesus brings everything that he has been saying in the previous seven to a summary and a conclusion. Blessed, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so as not to let us easily pass over this beatitude, Jesus doubles up and adds a second blessed statement after the first as a kind of commentary. Blessed are you who suffer for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you, and he's commenting more deeply on the meaning of the first, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you for my account. Unlike all the other Beatitudes, this one does not commend to us a virtue or an action or activity, but rather an expectation. An expectation that when our lives are truly characterized by all that has gone before what Jesus has said in the Beatitudes, that the world <clears throat> will not respond with favor and applause, but with reviling and rejection and persecution. And notice here also that with this last Beatitude, Jesus closes the circle he closes the circle and brings us back to the kingdom of heaven, which is what he started with, with the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Everything that Jesus is saying, has said in these Beatitudes is a description of the kingdom of heaven. He is giving us a vision and picture of kingdom living, of kingdom attitudes, of kingdom mentalities. And I've called these kingdom habits of the heart. The kingdom of heaven is a special phrase in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, a, it's largely equivalent to the term the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven refers to the whole scope of Jesus' ministry. It is a comprehensive term in its scope and its reach. It does not refer to an otherworldly place beyond this place, but it refers to the whole domain of Jesus' ministry in this world. The reality of heaven under the kingdom of heaven is not an escape from this world, but it is the reality of heaven seeping down into the earth wherever the ministry of Jesus is carried out in word and deed. The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God that is breaking in here and now through the lives of the church and the lives of the saints. And like the wind, it is an invisible kingdom. It is an invisible kingdom, but its ability to move objects in history is real. And while it cannot be claimed by any ethnic group, any governing body, any nation state or empire, its effects within and upon these realities is substantial. Which is why whenever the kingdom of heaven breaks forth upon the earth, no matter the political or cultural context, it is received as a threat to the native power structures and ruling authorities. You will recall that the Beatitudes teach us an alternative way of life in the world. Compared to all the kingdoms of this world, the Beatitudes represent a very unnatural and upside-down way of thinking, a very upside-down value system. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, mercy, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, purity of heart, peacemaking. These are the content of righteousness. These Beatitudes describe for us what it means what the character of being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven is all about. And so when Jesus speaks about suffering for righteousness sake, the very content of which he speaks are these beatitudes. But ultimately, of course, they are not like uh, virtues or practices or things we do independent of Jesus himself, because all these beatitudes together really represent his character, his person which is why no earthly kingdom is capable of living from these values. No earthly kingdom is able to write it into their constitution because they require a supernatural life rooted in the person of Jesus Christ for them to be livable. But when we as believers in Jesus Christ, we as a church embody them in life, what will happen inevitably is we will be put in tension, fundamental tension with the world all persecution of the church happens as a result of a clash of value systems. The church that suffers for righteousness sake is a church that lives at cross purposes with the world. 
That's what a martyr is, a witness. The Greek word for martyr or witness is martyr. To be a witness to Jesus Christ is to be at cross purposes with the world. To bear witness is to always have one's life pointing in a certain direction. And that direction is Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And no matter the time or the place in history, it will put us in tension and at cross purposes with the world. Now don't be misled by this word heaven. The kingdom of heaven does not lead us in otherworldly retreat, but it does lead us in an otherworldly engagement, an otherworldly engagement with the world. The persecution of the church is a mark of a church that is engaged with the world, that is obedient to Jesus' mission. No church needs worry about suffering which is not engaged in mission, which is not engaged in, with the world. If we are quiet and we mind our own business, nobody is going to bother us. No church that is engaged in mission but lacks the character of these beatitudes need worry at all either. For if we mirror the world in our attitudes and our habits and our ways of getting things done and accomplishing goals, the world will also not give us too much trouble. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is a call to a countercultural engagement with the world. And the location of this beatitude in the context of the Sermon of the Mount, I think, is key here. Notice that it comes right after being peacemakers and right before Jesus' statement about being salt and light. Both of these have to do with the way in which we engage one another and we engage the world. If you are engaged in peacemaking, you will find yourself with conflict. I know that is a paradox, but it is true. You will stir up trouble if you are a true peacemaker. If you boldly bear witness to the name of Jesus Christ to the nations in your context, you will get blowback. Resistance, suffering, and persecution are the natural byproduct and the sign of a church that engages as salt and light, because it is a church that is as cross-purposes with the world. The difficult question, I think, for us in our own particular context for understanding is what counts as suffering for righteousness' sake? What counts as suffering for righteousness' sake? Many Americans today perceive that the Christian faith is under siege. And for this reason are attracted to politicians and policies that pr promise to defend Christian values and an American Christian way of life. And I do agree that there are many significant ways that American culture is becoming increasingly secular and in certain issues quite hostile to Christian perspective. Yet despite these trends in America, our country is still profoundly open and congenial to the influence of Christianity and even Christian leadership. And so I think that understanding what it means to apply this 
the meaning of for righteousness sake in our own context is quite a complicated thing. It requires, I think, of us to be very careful and very patient in our reflection on our own American political identity and how this has impacted and shaped our Christian sense of self. Disentangling our Christian identity from our American identity is a very painful and slow process, but I think a necessary one. For Jesus does not bless suffering for partisan's sake, even under the guise of Christian faith. He blesses suffering for righteousness' sake, the content of which are the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And the possibility that as Christians we might suffer for all the wrong reasons has always been a concern and a reality that the New Testament has been aware of. I think as Americans, we are not unique in this problem. It afflicts all nations and tribes and peoples, which is why Peter and Paul reflect on it as well. Just a verse from 1 Peter 4. Peter actually has two chapters that he reflects on this in different ways. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because uh, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering for righteousness sake requires a discerning life. A life nurtured by a cross-centered spirituality. Suffering for righteousness' sake requires what I would like to call a subtle Christian life. And by subtle, I mean not obvious. To call the Christian life subtle, I mean that it is nuanced, reflective, understated, indirect, delicate. Delicate is the word that I like. Yes, it is bold and it is courageous, but it can only be bold and courageous after it has learned first in the quietness, in the anonymity, in the ordinariness of what it means to bear the cross in our everyday life. Yes, it is a life of utter clarity about what is true and right and good, but it is one of sensitivity and humility and gentleness and how we go about living that out faithfully. See, when we think of suffering for persecution, these are generally not the categories we think of. We tend to think in oppositional categories, things that are very clear-cut and black and white. It is light and darkness. It is good and evil. It is enemies and allies. It is the wicked and the righteous. And I think we imagine that in the day that we are confronted with suffering and persecution, the enemy will be so clear that it will have visible thorns, horns, right? And that the choices will be so obvious that no faithful Christian could think otherwise. And to be clear, these oppositional categories of light and darkness and good and evil and the righteous and the wicked are biblical categories, for sure, but they usually only become available to us clearly to apply to our context in life in retrospect when we're looking backwards because of course our vision is always 2020 when we look backwards 
this way of thinking in these sort of oppositional categories, I think, also fits with our tendency to romanticize the life of the martyrs. But when you look at the history of the church and you look at the historical records of martyrdom in the life of the church, it tells a very complicated story. And what you see in all periods, from the early church to the present, is that when the church is under real external threat, political threat, cultural threat, there is always lots of internal debate and disagreement and often failure among Christians about what is the right course of action. And what distinguishes the life of the martyrs and why they are martyrs is because they were men and women of discernment. And that's because evil rarely presents itself to us as a devil with horns and a pitchfork. Instead, it presents itself to us as what it means to be patriotic. It presents itself as what is reasonable social policy. It presents itself as the best thing for the economy, or the compassionate thing to do, or the only way to ensure our safety and security, or what is necessary to protect my rights and freedoms. Remember that all, before he fell, Satan was an angel of light, which means that evil always masquerades itself under the good. Evil is subtle. That means we must be subtle. The subtle Christian is the one that has learned to discern the subtleties of evil in the world because she has first, her whole life, been learning to discern the subtleties of evil in her own heart. The subtle Christian life is the fruit of a life nurtured around the kingdom values of Jesus' Beatitudes. Humility, gentleness, mourning, meekness, mercy, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, purity of heart, peacemaking. These kingdom habits of the heart give us discerning and subtle hearts to prepare us for suffering for righteousness' sake. The subtle Christian is the one who is prepared for the appointed hour to give her life in death for Jesus' sake because her whole life she has been preparing by a long process of learning to die to herself for Jesus' sake. We are on the lookout for big martyrdom moments and perhaps even secretly desire them. But Jesus' more immediate call to us is to a life filled with tiny little martyrdoms. These tiny little martyrdoms are mundane and unheroic choices that spring from us hearing Jesus' personal call to come and die. These tiny little martyrdoms are choices, little choices, such as how we spend our money, how we relate to our parents, what we do with our bodies sexually, how we respond to people who have hurt us, how we set our schedules, how we keep our promises, how we talk about our enemies, how attentive we are to the poor, to the oppressed, 
how we treat our spouse, how truthful we are when no one is looking and no one will know, where we give our most precious time and attention, or just to recall from our sacred reading from Matthew 25, it is the drink you give or the naked person you clothe, all those little things, when we think that nobody is looking, that it is invisible, those, those are the things. Jesus calls us personally to follow him. And for all of us, each of us, the shape and the character of that will look different slightly. But what is common to all of our experiences is the necessity of bearing the cross. Every day of our life will present itself with opportunities and choices that will require of us to deny ourselves and to pick up the cross. And if we are paying attention, if we're really listening for Jesus' voice, every day will be filled with tiny little martyrdoms. Times when I deny myself what is easy, what is comfortable, what is pleasurable, in order to follow Jesus. And these will go unnoticed by others, mostly, and will not draw attention to themselves in a moment. But at the end of a whole life, what they will amount to is something quite remarkable. Another chapter in the Book of the Martyrs. There is something awe-inspiring and beautiful about the lives of the saints who have given their life in martyrdom. There is an attraction to their life for good reason. Men and women like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Oscar Romero, Edith Stein, Jim Elliott, Jan Hus, Polycarp, Perpetua, Felicity. There is something incredibly beautiful and attractive about their lives because of the courage and the vitality and the fabric of them. And while the vast majority of us, I would say uh, none of us, will ever be called or required to die for the sake of our faith, Jesus calls all of us in the everydayness of our life to live with the same courage and vitality and joy of those martyred saints. As Bonhoeffer said, Christ, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus tells us that the martyred life is the joy-filled life. That the martyred life is the joy-filled life. How can this be, right? Such a life seems rather bleak even masochistic. Who in their right mind wants to make suffering, dying to self, and persecution the cornerstone of their life? And to be clear, Jesus never tells anyone to go out and to seek suffering and to seek persecution, to court it. He merely promises that when we are faithful followers of him that these things will find us. But Jesus insists that when we suffer for his sake, we are blessed blessed, happy, truly flourishing, that when we suffer for the sake of him, we should rejoice and be glad, for our reward is great in heaven. Deep joy, not despair, deep joy is the mark of a life that suffers for righteousness' sake. Whether we realize it or not, all of us here, every person, inside and outside in the world, all of us are driven to find a meaning and a significance in our life that is worth dying for. The greatness of the joy of our lives 
is always and will always be coordinated with the greatness of the thing to which we have given our lives to, to the thing which we're willing to die for. For it is only in living for something that is worth dying for that joy becomes available. And when we suffer for what is true, for what is good, for what is beautiful, when we suffer, in other words, for Jesus' sake, our lives are endowed with a deep meaning, a very profound significance, with true nobility, because they are attached to something far greater and more glorious than ourselves. They are attached to the kingdom of heaven and to the glory of Christ. And the great rewards of heaven of which Jesus speaks here is nothing less than that eternal weight of glory, which is an honor and a joy beyond words and beyond compare. That when we suffer for Jesus' sake, what happens to us is that we come to participate not only in his suffering, but also in his joy. That is why he came. The joy is why Jesus came in the first place. Why was he willing to suffer on our behalf? Why was he willing to be tortured and shamefully put to death? Because of the joy set before him. That's what the writer of Hebrews says as it encourages us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the sake of joy that the eternal Son became a man. It was for the sake of joy that he suffered. It was for the sake of joy that he took upon himself our own shame. It was for the sake of joy that he endured the cross. Joy bridged the gap between heaven and earth. Joy at the prospect that God would have for himself a bride restored, purified, and reconciled to himself in love. Brothers and sisters, know that when you suffer for Jesus' sake, that you are united with him, not just in his suffering, but in his joy. With his joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask for your joy. We ask for that deep meaning and satisfaction of coming to know that our lives are placed in that place that matters most, which is the center of your will, which is the center of your love and your holiness and your righteousness. Father, give us a vision of what it means to suffer for righteousness' sake in our time and in our place and in the quietness of our own lives and the hiddenness of our own lives. We thank you that you suffered and endured the cross for our sake, for the joy. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.